It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss. The lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision. Every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Hello and welcome to the Country Farm Magazine podcast. This episode we'll be talking about the October issue and with me in the studio to talk about it are Joe Tinsley, our features editor. Hello there. Dave Perrett, our production editor. Hello. And Abigail White, our editor assistant. Hello. October has a very watery theme this month. You'll see on the cover, um, which is in the shops now, we're looking at the Lake District, but not the typical Lake District. You'd expect Country Farm Magazine to go a bit off the beaten track. So it's not just Windermere and Coniston. We go to the southern Lakeland Peninsulas and show you a part of the lakes celebrated by Wordsworth that, um, where you can escape the crowds but see equally beautiful landscapes. It's a, it's a fantastically well-written piece by a guy called Neil Coates who's explored that area more than anyone else I know. And um, I think it's very worthy of our cover. Also worthy of our cover, though, is, is Joe's Big, Big Waterways feature, where she is taking us around the country, exploring some of our fantastic canals, rivers, lakes, and other watery wonderlands. Mm, well, Joe, would you like to tell us more about it? Um, yes, well, I mean, like, like, like Fergus says, we've um, chosen about 20 walks as our holidays experiences against our most beautiful and inspiring waterways, because um, lakes and, and canals are places that well, I think generally make us feel sort of calm and inspired. And that's what we really went for with this issue. So we've got um, one of our writers goes punting along the River Cam um, and explores Grandchester Meadows, which is where Virginia Woolf and um, Rupert Brooke and other creative folk would kind of swim under the swim under the starlight and the moon and, and talk, talk about creative things and be inspired, um, as well as the recently opened Greenway in Devon, which is where Agatha Christie used to come, not write, but just be calm and sort of while away the summers. We've also got our top 10 waterside retreats feature, which focuses on um, Britain's most serene water mills, boathouses and lock cottages. Well, some of those look absolutely gorgeous. There's a, particularly there's a horse box moored, moored parked beside a river <laughs> in, water, in these lovely meadows. And it just looks like a sort of ideal camper van it's without really, having to really drive the It's a unique idea, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's lovely. And there's, it's probably the best top 10 we've done just because each one is so seductive. And that's kind of, kind of an interesting question, is what is it about water 
that we're all drawn to. Mm. I'm, kind of, I'm kind of intrigued by, you know, quite often on holiday I'm happiest when I'm sitting by a river. And mm. Dave, you're a fisherman. I mean, Very much so. I think the thing that's always um, excited me about water um, ever since I was a boy is that you don't know what's underneath it. That's what I think is um, most exciting about it for me. That it's got a certain mystery to it. Yeah, you don't know what, what could be lurking beneath it. Probably not much. But <laughs> well, I'll be, t- I'll, be t- I'll be talking about something along those lines later when we come to our poetry features, but um, something lurking in the depths. But I, I agree, there is a mystery and um, a sense of somewhere we can't readily explore. Well, Joe, you're quite a keen wild swimmer. Hmm. So you spend yeah. a lot of time exploring some of the murky but depths. But I, I, I spend my time trying not to imagine what lurks beneath <laughs> me. I generally, it's, it's not good to have things that touch when you're swimming. Yeah. swimming yeah. Giant rivers. eels and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and various things. What about you, Abigail? You're a kayaker. Um, yes. So you're a water baby too. Yeah, I've mainly been doing um, kayaking on the Y, which is sort of the closest river to, to where I live. But recently I've been to the, on kayaking on the Lug as well, which is a, a smaller river that goes through Hereford. Is that a tributary of the Y then? Um, it sort of, it joins the Y just after Hereford um, sort of flows into the Y, and yeah, it's I love it just because it's just got higher banks, so you can't see what's ahead on the horizon. You're just sort of enclosed in this little the Y is world. Quite, quite sort of wide open. Yeah, well, in, in parts obviously, and quite slow moving as well. Whereas the lugs quite speedy. It's like going down a country lane in Cornwall. You can't actually see the countryside because of the hedgerows. So you like you like the lack of lack of countryside. You like just to be cha- <laughs> cha- channeled down a river. Oh, I just love the just the. Wondering where I am, where am I now, and not being able to tell. Very again, much. again, it's the mystery of it, isn't it? The yeah. mystery of, of what's beneath you and also where it's going to take you. Mm. Joe, what about your sort of favourite waterway? Um, well, I went down to an early stretch of the River Severn um, to try fly fishing um, for for this issue of the magazine. Um, it's it's really intriguing to kind of see that area of the River Severn because the Severn that we're used to seeing down here in Bristol is kind of huge and you know, brown and br- swollen and sort of unfriendly looking. Well, exactly yeah. yeah and up there it just kind of gently it goes down these little riffles which are only like a few foot deep and it's sort of teeming with with trout and grayling so I went there to see if I could learn in a day how how to catch one and I did actually catch I caught one the oh you've given one. it away no, yeah. you don't need to read the article now. <laughs> it's true it's true so after a long day fishing on the River Severn, I sat down with my instructor, Andrew Cartwright, um, and we were next to this big, deep pool where two um, rivers kind of flowed into, into one pool, and there was loads of different environments in, in which to fish. So I asked Andrew to explain where the best places to fish were in this particular stretch of river. When you're sort of fishing, what you want to be looking at is where the flow and the current is. easiest way to know where the flow and the current is going is either follow like a stream of bubbles or if you've got leaves coming off the trees or any sort of, if you like, like the dandelion little, I'm not sure what they call them, like the little, mm. when you blow them. The, the, the seeds. Yeah, the yeah. seeds and things coming off. Watch where they're going on the water. Anywhere they're going on the water should point you into a, a direction of where the fish should sit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously, if you've got fish rising like what we had this morning, they're giving themselves away, so you know where they're going to be, so you'd aim for them. But if it's wet fly fishing, say follow the currents, follow where you can see the bubbles and you should be in the right sort of line. What you tend to get, especially if it's really fast, like what's in front of you here, is they'll sit slightly on either side. They won't sit in the main, you know, pressure of water. They'll sit slightly to the side and some slacker, pop in, take it and pop back out again, saving energy, just like we would really. Mm -hmm. If you think of the whole river as like metre squares, 
put your fly through each square and at least you know even if you don't catch a fish at least you know you've put it in the right area you've tried every single place you can and it'll say if the fish doesn't take your fly you can always swap your fly for something else but you know you've covered all the water it's not a case of you know you walk back and you think oh flipping hell I didn't try over there yeah, yeah. you know sort of thing at least you're covering it all I then asked Andrew to explain what it was he loved about fly fishing other than catching fish. To me, really, it's the whole, if you like, the whole package. It's slightly a more natural way of fishing. You're very mobile. You're all, you know, like I say, like where we're sitting now, you go round the corner, it's new again. You keep moving. It's a new scenario. The wildlife you see, you know, well, sometimes as well, the different people you meet. You meet some real nice people on the riverbank and have a chat and whatever. But it's everything to do with it. It's like it's more of a complete package. The more I talked to Andrew, the more I realised how the making of a fly was as much an integral part of fly fishing as, you know, learning how to cast or how to pull in a fish. So I asked him how he went about making such elaborate designs. With your uh, materials, I mean, it's almost absolutely everything and anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, some, I get some quite strange looks sometimes. You go in ladies' dress shops and stuff like that and it's the threads and beads mm-hmm. and different things yeah, I mean, you do look like jewellery yeah you? I mean I, I always remember in Newtown there was a lady there and if you buy I mean that's the trouble when it's specifically for fly tying mm. you get say a metre of say chenille and it's £1.50 for this metre of chenille because it's for fly tying yeah. you go in the lady's shop for knitting chenille exactly the same and it's like £1.75 for 150 metres yeah and I went in there and I asked for some black chenille and she just looked at me and she said, before you ask, no, we don't do fluorescent colours. I was like, what makes you... She goes, you want it for fly tying, don't you? And I was like, how do you know? I might and, be knitting. <laughs> and it's, you know, you can get it... They say there's fly tying... People just do fly tying only materials. Mm. And the list, it, it is phenomenal. Mm. You know, it's, well, mind-blowing. If you get into fly tying, you start looking at things in other ways quality street the different coloured wrappers stuff mm. like that it's you know it can be stupidly you know people are like he, he, he's, he's off his head this <laughs> but you see you know just little things makes heck of a difference that was instructor andrew cartwright talking about the art of fly fishing and if you want to find out more then you can read our feature in the october issue dave you're a keen fisherman so you spend a lot of time messing about near the river yeah um drowning worms <laughs> It's very hard to pick um, one favourite waterway. Um, I find it very difficult. But um, this issue, um, I went walked along one of my favourites for the magazine, um, the Kennington Avon Canal, which is quite near me. So that's somewhere I've always enjoyed since I was a child. But I also got to explore um, another canal, um, the Langollen Canal, which is somewhere I'd never been before. And um, we went on a, my family and I went on a barge. It was it was amazing. We had a brilliant time. It did look. It did look good. It was a what was it a seventy foot boat? Yeah, which, um, yeah. That was of, that was interesting. Trying to um, they're quite unwieldy, and yeah, that's how, a very how narrow. How do you go about of, doing a three point turn in a <laughs> in a seventy foot narrow boat? You do a seventy point. Is turn. it a seventy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, trying to do a three point turn um, in the town of Ellesmere when we were looking for a mooring one evening was um, one of the more harrowing moments of my life. <laughs> um, my daughter's favourite favourite teddy, Mrs. Bunny. Um, went to a watery grave oh, as no. we were trying to do that. So um, we don't talk about Mrs. Bunny anymore. In fact, Mrs. Bunny's got a replacement, but it's just not the same. Um, so yeah, turn it, turning the boat was probably 
you know the most difficult part of it but actually just trundling along um looking at the scenery crossing two unbelievable aqueducts um it was just amazing really really brilliant i'd do it again at the drop of a hat lovely lovely i'm my my favourite river is a very tiny stream in Somerset called the River Kale, which flows through um, Wincanton, where I grew up, a um, small town. And I used to spend a lot of time down there catching things like minnows and sticklebacks and generally wandering around. But very, very sadly, I went back there recently and it had been seriously polluted and all the fish had gone apart from one or two little sticklebacks. It was the most depressing thing and sort of such a so, so sad to have such a wonderful childhood memory blighted by by seeing all that happen to was, the river was this a one-off over the years i think it's a lot of uh, runoff from farmers upstream so there's it's heavily silted heavily uh full of horrible green algae nasty sort of foam everywhere yeah and, that's a real uh, shame i see quite shame. a lot of that foam around sometimes yeah in some of rivers. it is natural i've been told it's yeah. like algal built it's like the yeah, sort of bacteria in the water but yeah. this was um this was a serious and, and there, there were some news stories about it in the local press but just just a shame that other kids can't have that same experience growing up in the town and playing plus they built all around it as well all the all the lovely old riverbanks are now replaced with sort of walkways so uh, you can push a pram along and, and see a dead river. Mm-hmm. Very sad. Anyway, let's move on to happier things or other things in the October issue, which is, is packed and themed with sort of seasonal treats, lots of food, lots of fun things to do. But um, obviously October is that darkening of the evenings and mysterious things start to happen towards the end of the month, culminating in Halloween, which um, most of us know from sort of American celebrations of pumpkins and crazy sort of comic witches and and trick-or-treaters. But actually witches and witchcraft has has a very, very long history in the British countryside. And so um, we commissioned a journalist to go and do some research into finding out what what, what, what are the real rural riches and witches and what did they get up to? Joe, do you know more about the feature? You you commissioned that one. Yeah, well, um, our writer Gemma Hall, she sort of looked into the truth behind rural witchcraft in the UK. It's hard to say. It, yeah, it's certainly hard for me to say rural witchcraft in the UK. And she found out that um, as opposed to being, you know, evil evil folk with, you know, black hats and cats cauldrons and cauldrons and, and, yeah. and, you know, there were a few of those, sure. But um, most of them were fortune tellers and astrologists and herbalists. And they were people that you'd go to if you wanted to cure an Ill- illness or if you had lost property, the sort of thing that people would travel to from other communities as you would to go see a doctor. Um, so she sort of unearthed, uh, you know, a lot of these characters throughout our countryside. It's a really intriguing f- um, feature. And um, Gemma actually found, um, she interviewed a, a well, I, I think he's a real-life modern-day witch. Um, he certainly knows a lot about them. He's a witchcraft expert who um, runs um, a company called Seek the Magic in Stratford-on-Avon. And um, he's called Dave Matthews. And she, she interviewed him and asked him about the truth behind modern witchcraft in the UK. Now, you may think that the days of witchcraft belong to perhaps a few hundred years ago, but as I found out when I spoke to Dave Matthews from the Seek the Magic organisation... There are actually thousands of witches apparently practising today, and it's also considered one of the fastest growing religions. I spoke to Dave on the phone from his base in Stratford-upon-Avon, where he runs witchcraft courses, and I started by asking him about the role of witchcraft in today's society. 
I think witchcraft is, is just as important today as it ever was. There are still people that, around the country where uh, healers that go out there, and a lot of what is termed witchcraft um, has been demonized in the past by the church and demonized by society, but in many ways a lot of it has become acceptable. You can go to college now and learn to be an aromatherapist, a kinesiologist, you can learn reflexology, you can learn about herbs. All of those things were part of witchcraft in the dim and distant past, but they are all now acceptable. The one thing that hasn't become uh, acceptable as yet, I suppose, in many ways, is the spell casting side of it, and that's the part that people are still a bit funny about. I asked Dave if there are different types of witches. A lot of the uh, modern witches that are out there fall in to either the Alexandrian or Gardnerian camps. Alexanders and Gerald Gardner uh, resurrected witchcraft in the 1940s, 50s and 60s and brought it to the modern world. But in reality today, things have moved on so in so many different directions. There's Sanex Wicca, there's Fairy Wicca, there's Dianic Wicca, so many different branches, all of which follow the same principles, but in reality, all of which are going down their own path. And the nice thing about that means there is no one right or wrong way to do this and so therefore the Wiccan and witchcraft communities although they might be very disparate actually are all in harmony with one another and in fact it's very much about harmony in the world and harmony in life. Is it a religion? I do consider it a religion. I think it's probably one of the oldest on the planet. The interesting thing about it, of course, is that unlike Christianity, where there is uh, one God, uh, one Father, one Son, one Holy Ghost, and it's a very simple uh, tr- uh, trinity, within the uh, Wicca and witchcraft, it's a lot more complicated than that. Although we still have the maiden mother crone, the, the, the female version of the trinity in many ways, there are other aspects, and there are so many different aspects to the goddess. You've actually got uh, Demeter, Persephone, um, the people might perhaps prefer to uh, worship Keridwen for knowledge, they have the crone, all sorts of different things. But it boils down to the same thing, that there are only three aspects of the goddess within religion. And in reality, yeah, it is a religion as palpable today as it ever was in the past. And what do you believe in? What do I believe? I believe in the trees, I believe in the planet, I believe in the earth, the stones, the energy of the winds, the waters. And most people who follow uh, magic and witchcraft in all its forms will actually say that, but they do believe in it in the four or the five elements, perhaps. Sometimes it's even referred to even six elements. Depends on whether you class ice as water or as its own separate uh, entity. But I think you'll find that most people that follow Wicca or witchcraft in any shape or form believe in the elements and they respect the planet, they look after the planet's resources. They might perhaps be eco-warriors, they might just be people that recycle a bit more. But certainly we're very proud of the fact that we come from this planet and we're very proud of the gifts the planet gives to us. And consequently it's our duty to respect the planet and look after it as well. A lot of people like to practice uh, outside if they can do. They might go to a secluded area uh, in in the fields. They might just practice as they're walking through the fields. If they've got a big garden, they might practice in the garden. It could be just you practice in one room in your house. It's up to individuals. We don't have churches on street corners. We don't have great big monumental buildings. What we have is we have oak groves. We have stone circles. We have the rivers, the streams, the waterfalls, the fountains, the the babbling brooks. All of that is the universe and the cathedral of witchcraft. And how marvellous is is it to be surrounded by that on a daily basis.
What type of person comes to you to, to, to do a course? Um, there is no particular kind of person. I wish I could say it was uh, Wanda from Worsted and Edna from Edinburgh or something like that. I can't do that. It is all sorts of people. It can be uh, teenagers. It can be um, young married couples. It can be people who work on farms, people who work in cities, people who've got high-powered jobs, all sorts of different things. One of the groups that we run here has a complete cross-section of people uh, that, that are on a regular basis. We only meet once a month, but they are a complete different cross-section of people. And to be honest, if you met them in the street, you wouldn't go, oh, gosh, look, they're two-headed, they're a witch. You can't tell. Witches are around you. They're everywhere. And we are no different to anybody else. A lot of people expect that if you buy a magic wand, then sparks are going to fly out the end. And they expect you to be able to uh, zap people uh, across dimensions. And you, they expect people to be able to uh, make themselves invisible and things like that. It's not quite like that. I asked Dave whether witchcraft today is different from in the past. Witchcraft today is a much more open thing. You know, as little as 40 or 50 years ago, it was something that had to be done in relative secrecy. Now, Gerald Gardner and Alex Sanders brought a lot of it out into the, into the modern world in the 1950s and 60s. And so they have a lot, we have a lot to be thankful for, for a lot of the work they did. But on the other hand, you know, they had their own agendas, I'm sure. And I think that if you look at it now compared to 150 years ago, the actual physical rituals and the physical rites that are done are probably very, very similar to the past. Although, of course, a lot of people write books, Cassandra Eason, uh, Kate West, loads of people out there write incredibly good books, but they create modern uh, rituals and modern rites and modern spells. But the, the anchor to all of this is in the past. So is it different to the past? Only because it's not quite so secret. I think the information is much more readily available in the information age that we live in, and because of that, um, it's more widely spread, and there are more branches of the craft. But the roots, well, the roots are all the same. I've actually met Dave Matthews before because he helped out with the Black Dog feature that I wrote in the July issue, and he's such a fascinating guy, um, as you can as you can hear there. And um, we've also got, um, if you go to our website and look at uh, bbccountryfiremagazine.com forward slash witchcraft, we've actually got a witchcraft map for you there as well as, as a special bonus for our website users. Um, it's got a map of all the sort of famous witches around the country from the Pendle Witches in Lancashire, um, which is one of the most famous witch trials in our history, to famous soothsayers like Mother Shipton in Knaresborough, um, who apparently foresaw motor cars, trains, submarines and aircrafts. So um, log on to our website and, and have a look. That would make Leonardo da Vinci a witch as well, because he saw the same things. <laughs> Maybe he was. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's our witchcraft feature, um, which you can read in the October issue. And another interesting seasonal um, event that we're featuring, uh, along with Halloween there, is National Poetry Day, which falls on the 7th of October this year. Now, our take on poetry was to have a look at how some of the great poets, um, British poets, have expressed or conveyed their experiences, their emotions and their love of the countryside through poetry. So we asked um, a poet who's features on BBC Radio 4 very often, Kenneth Stephen, to pick four of his favourite countryside poems. I'm, I'm always keen to try and uh, sort of big up poetry in the magazine. I think it's a lovely way of expressing things that can't necessarily be written down in normal prose. Anyway, we thought this time round we'd all pick our own favourite poems from the countryside. Okay. Joe. What have you chosen? Um, I've chosen Ode to Autumn by Keats. I mean, this is one of the sort of 
most people come across poetry when it's sort of forced on them through GCSEs and A-levels and degrees and things like that. And this was actually one of the one of the poems that stuck with me. I, I think I know some of it off by heart, um, but it stuck with me for a good reason, because I think it captures autumn beautifully. Um, and, yeah, shall I, perfect, shall I read? Perfect for the October issue. Yeah, shall I stumble over you, the first, have a go? Um, yeah, first yeah. part? Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run. To bend with apples and mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel to set budding more, and still more later flowers for the bees, until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has overbrimmed their clammy cells. Brilliant. Beautifully Brilliant. Thank yeah. you, thank you. I'm there <laughs> I haven't read autumn. poetry for years. Ah, <laughs> oh, who'd Especially want spring, that. summer and winter after that? <laughs> <laughs> um, how about you, Abigail? Have you brought anything along? Yes, I've brought along um, A Shropshire Lad by Ahe Houseman. It's not actually my um, favourite poet or favourite collection of poetry. It's my dad's favourite favourite collection. Um, he read this poetry while we were living in Luton in Bedfordshire. And it's a Shropshire lad that um, sort of prompted my dad to want to take us on holiday up near Ludlow, which led to us actually moving from Luton up to Ludlow. So, to Herefordshire. Yeah, <laughs> you're, a, you're a Herefordshire lass. I'm a Herefordshire a Shropshire lass lad. now, yeah. <laughs> Still got a bit of Luton in me, but... <laughs> um, so, yeah, this extract is called uh, The Recruit. Leave your home behind, lad, and reach your friends your hand and go and luck go with you, while Ludlow Tower shall stand. O come you home of Sunday, when Ludlow streets are still, and Ludlow bells are calling to farm and lane and mill. Or come you home of Monday, when Ludlow market hums, and Ludlow chimes are playing, the conquering hero comes. Very good, very good. Lovely old Ludlow. <laughs> nice one. Um, well, I've chosen one, and I think hopefully Dave will like this. Dave, not the, the world's greatest fan of poetry. No, I'm you, afraid not. Would you like really. to expand on that? Or in the not particularly. It's just never really captured my imagination. Well, hopefully, this this poem about the monsters of the deep that uh, we we touched on earlier will um will entice you into poetry again. <laughs> this is Pike by Ted Hughes, and it's uh, kind of expressive of the, the as we say the mysteries of things unseen beneath the water's surface. And I'm just going to read out a couple of the stanzas. A pond I fished, fifty yards across, whose lilies and muscular tench had outlasted every visible stone of the monastery that planted them. Stilled, legendary depth, it was as deep as England. It held pike too immense to stir, so immense and old that past nightfall I dared not cast. But silently cast and fished, with the hair frozen on my head, for what might move, for what I might move, that still splashes on the dark pond. Owls hushing the floating woods, frail on my ear against the dream. Darkness beneath darkness had freed. That rose slowly towards me, watching. Ta-da! <laughs> did did he catch the... any? That's the thing. Yeah, he did. He, Ted Hughes is a very famous pike fisherman, actually, and he loved... He, he, he sort of talks about seeing pike as long as railway sleepers. And, <laughs> and he, he was fascinated by them. And I think they're kind of one of these... Amazing! They're like sharks to me, and you just occasionally see them in rivers. They're like the barracudas. Yeah, rivers, really, but they're very still, and then they suddenly catch. They suddenly hunt with a flash and a 
uh, massive sort of swing of their tails and then they're gone again. Have, you, have you ever caught one, Dave? Yeah, quite a few. As, oh, as, a, ch- yeah. as a child, um, I have to admit they were the one sort of fish that captured our imagination mm. just just for, for the reasons you've already mentioned, just because they kind of held that sort of mystery and, and fear as well. Mm. You know, that we'd always be told that don't put your finger near their mouth because they'll take your finger off and things like that, you know, and, and, and tench or carp or, or roach or anything else didn't hold that sort of mystery. So No, they're more the sort of sluggish sort of uh, vegetarians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm really jealous, Dave, that you've caught pike. You've got to take me pike fishing one day. Well, the first time we ever caught one, I must have been about 13 or 14, and... Um, we thought that the um, spinner that we were using was snagged. Um, snagged just means caught on the bottom. And, and uh, so I was hoisting it up, trying to get through this snag, or uh, well, what I thought was a snag, and it was a four-pound uh, pike was on the end. Which was, was so heavy. Which, yeah. yeah, which was quite big for us for us of that So age. heavy it felt like the bottom of the river. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That sounds like a Ted Hughes line. We, we, were, struck, <laughs> we were struck with fear. And um, but we managed to uh, get the hook out of it carefully and put it back. But yeah, that was the first time I ever caught one. So those, so that's our selection of poetry. Um, and you can read Kenneth's the more expert selection in the magazine this month. But what do you think? Have you got any particular countryside poems that you love? Why don't you tell us? And we'd love we'd love to hear them. We might even print them in the magazine. Contact us at editor at bbccountryfile.com. Well, that just about rounds it up for this this month's podcast. Just pleased me to say thanks very much for listening and thank you to Joe, Abigail and Dave for their wonderful contributions. Goodbye from Country Fire Team. Bye. 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 Bye.